Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people, and it's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Thank you for coming to this house to worship today. Before I get into the word, I want to discuss the events that have occurred in our nation this week. Boy, painful are they. And just like you, I've had to make sure that my emotions are in check before my mouth begins to open. To find God and the best theology, my best understanding of how he responds to situations like this, to find him, sometimes in spite of my ethnicity, to figure out the best way for, for the church to respond, not just me. And there's no way to describe the events this week other than to say they are tragic. But there is not a problem in the world for which God has not given a solution. And Jesus is always the answer. Always. But Jesus then says, I want to use this tool to fix that problem. And I'm convinced that this is an opportunity for the church to show who she's supposed to be. Especially a church like ours. Multi-ethnic. See, the seeds that, that caused so much angst in our country, not just that caused the horrible deaths of people, but so much angst in our country were planted years ago, errantly, and now they are producing weeds in culture of mistrust, of disassociation, of marginalization, of disrespect. And any time something is unearthed in our society with respect to race and tension and ethnicity, then all of that comes up, not just about the one event, but about everything that's happened for the 450 years we've been here. That's what you feel. It's not about that one. It's about 450 years. And how do you address that? How do you, how do you fix in one generation mistakes that have been in 20 successive except God do something miraculous in a group of people. There are steps in the church. Being a multi-ethnic folk, black folks, white folks, Asian, Latino, with a sense of intentionality in what we do, is not, it's not by accident that we are together like this. It's because we, we have a recipe that produces this. It is not just for window dressing. It's not so people can say, wow, if you're a white person, my pastor's black. <laughs> or if you're black, boy, Tiffany's like white chocolate, ain't she? <laughs> <laughs> it's not just for window dressing. There's supposed to be some substance that comes out of here for the benefit of our community. That it may not work anyplace else, but it sure does work here. And if it's going to work anyplace else with great substance, then maybe we ought to take our cue from where it does work best, and that's in the church. Police officers are human beings, and they make horrible mistakes. And their mistakes are big because they have all the authority on the planet. They have guns. And some police officers who look like did some really bad things this week. And some very fine police officers lost their life this week. 
And when I think about the police, as bad as the circumstances were, and I can't get the video out of my head. I can't get the video out of my head. It keeps me awake. As bad as those circumstances are, I know that the vast majority of the police officers are good men and good women. I care about them and I pray for them. They do their best to try to serve our community well. We have a, an excellent relationship with our police department here. When I say we, I mean you as Grace Covenant, we. Two, two years ago, we had a forum in our church whereby we invited the police chiefs of the major districts in our area, Arlington, Fairfax, I think Fairfax City and Manassas, to come and talk to us about their policies and procedures. And we had our congregation there, if you wanted to come on a Saturday morning. And it was two and a half hours of very, very uh, un unbridled questions. We let the horses run. And the police officers, the police chiefs, sometimes didn't know how to respond. And they said, we're going to work on that. They were very humble. And then they gave excellent information that informed us, oh, that's how you do that. That's why you do that. That makes sense. It was phenomenal for two and a half hours. So good was it that you, the congregation, stood up and gave these officers who were on stage a standing ovation. The officers came to me and said, Pastor Brett, I was a moderator, said, that's the best we've ever been to. Thank you. You're helping our community and you're helping us. That resulted in the police chief of Fairfax County, of which I think, I could be wrong, I think it's the 14th largest police department in the, in the country, 1,400 officers. It's the largest in this area for sure. Asked me to participate in interviewing and assessing whether officers could be promoted in his department. That's what he thinks about you, Grace Covenant. And so for three days in the month of March, I sat down for... 45 minutes or so each with 18 officers asking them questions. And when they came in, they did not know who the panel was. It was myself, two other people, one an educator from the University of Virginia, one the assistant, uh, the deputy chief of the, Fair, of the um, park police in Washington, D.C., and the other was the chief of police for the Fairfax County, and then me. They didn't know who the panel was. They knew the chief of police would be there, but they didn't know the rest of them. And they walked in, and they saw this black preacher they said, oh, it's going to be like that today. <laughs> and I asked them all the same questions, all the same questions. And they had to give us policy and procedure. If something like this occurred, what would you do? How would you respond? What is the best way for, for an officer to deal with this situation? Three days. And the police chief thought it was a good idea for somebody who represents Grace Covenant to participate. Um, and this was for officers who are either commanders or captains in the police department, and they want to rise to major. And major is the level right below the chief, and there are only three majors in the entire department. And so these 18 were looking to go to the next level, for which there are only three positions. And it was one of the privileges of my life, though I, in the middle of it, thought, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Ah, uh, I've, never, I've never spent that much time not doing spiritual things. 
since I've been employed as a pastor. So it was, it was all just, and I kept saying, this is good for my community. This is good for my community. This is good for my community. And I wasn't so much forcing myself as to reinforce to myself that this was proper. I'm glad I did it, and I would do it again. Because to have spiritual input, and, and believe me, my evaluation, we, we graded these folk. And I graded them very differently than all the other three. All the time. Sometimes I was higher when they were lower. Sometimes they were lower when I was higher. Did I, is that the same thing I said? Yeah. Sometimes I was lower when they were higher. Anyway, you know what I mean. We weren't on the same page sometimes. And we had to sit there and dialogue about what was important, character or procedure. Which was most important? This guy had procedure that was wonderful. I don't know about his character so much. And so if he's got procedure and doesn't have character, when push comes to shove, I think he's going to rely on his lack of character rather than procedure, and that's, that could be a problem. Now, this guy's got a lot of character, but he can be taught. He can be taught. He doesn't he know what he's doing. But he, can, <laughs> but he can be taught. I trust him more than I trust the other guy. But they were going on procedure because that's where they live. And so all of us got to talk, and I, I said, well, this was helpful. This was good. This was good. We have such a relationship that when all this stuff happened this week, I gave him a call. I emailed him. I said, how you doing? We're praying for you. He said, thank you so much. He sent that email to his entire department. And I said, would you like to come on Sunday, have a 10-minute conversation in front of my church as you and me? He said, I'd love to, but I'm already scheduled to be in New York. I can't make it. He said, but I'll come some other day. That's how much he trusts you, and this is the kind of input he desires for the betterment of his community and the police department. My point in saying all that, long way around to the front door, is that we are working really hard here to make sure what happened in, in Baton Rouge and what happened in Minnesota never happens here. We're working hard. <laughs> Having said that, even when you develop excellent policies and procedures, you still are, still are dealing with people who are flawed, individuals who either have fears, insecurities, or don't know. They are, it's an unknown thing. They already perceive something to be real when it's not, when they begin to address somebody they don't know or a different culture. And so they're defensive. They don't respond normally. And, and, and mistakes are made, and it's horrible. Which means if we're not dealing so much with policy and procedure then maybe one of the best courses of action is to engage the church in what she does best, which is presenting a message that changes hearts. Are you listening to me? Oh, March, please, exercise your right of free speech. Make sure you vote right. Do all the things that, that are incumbent upon you as a good steward of being uh, a citizen of the United States. But don't forget the greatest privilege we have been given as a church and that is preaching the gospel, which changes hearts. And when you change somebody's heart, when you make them brand new, somehow some of the fears they had before are no longer irrelevant. They don't think the way they used to. Anybody know what I'm talking about, Mr. and Mrs. Born Again out there? So I bring the responsibility for the betterment of our community at large back to the step of the church 
What are you doing on a daily basis to make sure that the people around you know why they've been put on the planet and can, can experience the forgiveness and redemption of God? Because when we, when we see people become better Christians, they become better people. So I beg you, preach that to that person that you don't know where where's blue, because you see them only in the off, off in their off times, and allow the gospel to go down in their heart, and especially if you're black, go find a white person and talk to them. See, this is the privilege we've got as a church. We have substantive relationships in here that are supposed to be salt to a corrupt world out there that doesn't know how to relate. We're not just talking about window dressing. We're talking about making what happens in here naturally begin to happen out there supernaturally. This is why we are established differently to be what everybody hopes. Mike said it this morning. Who can heal our world? You. Yes, the answer is always Jesus. But he has decided by way of standard operating procedure to use people. And you are the best version of people to be able to deal with the issues we got today. You're the best version. Because you live with people who are like you regularly. You walk with them. You love with them. You pray with them. You cry with them. You understand them. They add value to your life and you to theirs. Nobody can address the issues that plague our country better than people like us. I love homogenous congregations, that they are all the same group, same ethnicity, worship the same way, got the same heritage, happy. Sorry, my voice, struggling with a cold. I'm working it. Plus, this is the third time I've done this today. I love that they're out there. No issue with that, happy. But I know God has established us for something different, not just to advocate for one group of people, but to advocate for our nation. And in doing so, heal everybody. God, help, please. Help that family that lost a man in Baton Rouge. Help the family that lost a brother, a son, a cousin, a father in Minnesota. God bring comfort to all those families who lost their loved one in Dallas. Heal our nation, oh God, please. Do something special by using us to be a balm to the pain of our country. We believe that now is the time. Have your way in the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. All right, can you hear anything else I got to say? I mean, are your ears still open? Turn with me over to Exodus. I don't have a lot of time, so you're going to have to hear fast. Ten Commandments. We're on Commandment 3 and 4. The title of the message is Carry and Keep. Carry and Keep. Exodus 20, verses 7 through 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day 
It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Lord, help us as we study today. Two things I'd like to speak to you about this passage. One, what it means to revere the name of God. And secondly, what it means to remember the Sabbath. Revere and remember. These commandments are important. They are not things by which we will be judged eternally. Thank God. Because we've broken most of them. If not all of them. I realize you're saying, wait a minute, I ain't murdered nobody. I get that. But Jesus elevated the commandment. He said, I know you, you may not have struck somebody dead, but if, you, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. So you qualify. <laughs> At some level, we, if you've lived long enough, you've qualified. You've qualified. So these commandments are really important, and we have to understand the motivation behind them, the spirit behind them primarily, so that we don't just go and begin to apply them wrongly when God meant it to be applied in a different way. First of all, what it means... To, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Our Western mind hears it like this. Don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Don't let it come out of your mouth in a way that has no meaning. And indeed, that's part of it. But that's not how the Hebrew would have heard it when it was said. Let me concentrate on this one point, though. It's important that you make sure that you reserve the name of God for that which he has approved, it be used. And for nothing else. It should obviously never be used as an expletive. So you never want to use the name of Jesus Christ for something that went wrong. In place of saying, oh shoot, you don't want to do that. And you definitely don't want God to condemn something on a regular basis. By, by using GD. We're trying to save the world. Not condemn it. And whenever we say GD, we're saying D-A-M-N, that thing. Why do we want to do that? We're the folks that are trying to help it and preserve it. And then on that topic, God has not reserved his name to be used in that way. How would you like it if somebody used your name in a way that condemned everything in every other sentence? You think, wait a minute, I don't want my name to be used like that. It's a disrespect to the person who owns the name, and it's a wrong use of the person who is using the name. Now, when we use his name so wrongly coming out of our mouth, because we use it so wrong and without meaning, when we use it, when we really need to use it, i.e., in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, in the name of Jesus, devil, come out, because we've used it so wrongly and without meaning, when we need to use it, we don't have meaning when we use it. Oh, it has power and meaning. But in our minds, it doesn't because we've used it so many other times when it didn't do anything that now when we need it to do something, it's not said with force and faith when we need to use it. And so you come into the environment with doubt and unbelief. And you come into the environment having used a name that didn't work in other settings. And now when you use it, when somebody needs healing, when somebody needs a devil cast out of their life, it doesn't work when you use it. 
We need to reserve this name for holy moments, for moments where God has relegated it be used best for salvation, for deliverance, for healing. His name is holy. Let's make sure we set it apart. And the word that is used here, keep, is the word nasa in Hebrew, which means to bear, not just use. And so the Hebrew would have heard it like this. If you're going to take my name, if you're going to to hold on to it, you bear it well. Now, the people of, of Israel were called Israel, but they had God's name as their definer. No other people group on the planet had the name of the Lord. None. Only them. And for a good period of time, they didn't even know his name. They didn't know who he was. They knew he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but there was no name associated to him. They called him Elohim, which meant God, but that was a title. And so Moses gets to the place where he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with the rest of his life, and God is trying to tell him, this is what I want you to do. He doesn't want to do it. Moses is arguing with God about going to Egypt because he likes his cushy job as a shepherd. And he's trying to get out of it, and he says to God at one point, okay, if you want me to go, tell me who's sending me. What's your name? I am is sending you. Like, is that, is that a name? It, I, and so what Moses was looking for is something that would define God according to human terms because all of our names define who we are. So Moses had a name. And it described how he was really brought into the earth. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter named him. I will call you Moses for you were drawn out of water. And indeed, he was put in a little basket and sent down the river. You have to read the story. But Moses was much more than the name. But that described a moment. And we have names, all of us. And it tells us a little bit about who we are, but does it describe all of you? My name is Brett. Does anybody know what that means? Anybody? I mean, I, I, I begged my daddy. Can't you change my name? This is when I was four. I had some cognizance. Can't you change my name? I want to be named after you. I want to, I, I want to be Joseph, Joe. He said, no, we can't change your name. I said, why? Well, it turns out my, I'm, I'm a second firstborn. So my dad had a previous marriage. And he had a son, and he named his son, gave him his name, Joe. And so my dad didn't have the George Foreman revelation, so I couldn't take it. <laughs> Look on the internet, you'll figure it out. So he couldn't give me that name, and so he let my mama name me. Now, now my mama was a great woman, I mean, fabulous woman, to put up with me and to raise our, her, her children, my siblings, amazing. I, I just... Gosh, what a lady. But she liked TV a little too much. <laughs> and, and so there was a show in 1958 called The Maverick Brothers. And, and, and the leading character was James Garner, and his name was Brett in the show. And, and his brother's name was Bart. And th these two brothers were riverboat gamblers. And so they swindle people out of their money for a living. And it, it, the show's great, but it's, it's about a bunch of crooks. It's, it's two crooks. 
they're the protagonists. That, Mama, you named me after a swindler? <laughs> That's the best you could do? Again, my brother came four and a half years later. She named him Bart. <laughs> you can't make this up. That is the truth. Like, does my name define all of me? Surely it doesn't define any of me. And for the most part, it's a name that nobody knows what it means unless I tell them. And so I am giving character to the name by, by the way I live. But how do you confine the God of the universe to a name? Just one. And so as, as Moses was trying to figure this out, God just said, I am the best I can do. What it means is I've always been and I always will be. Everything that has been, I am. I was never has been. I've never been in the past. I am. This is the thing about eternity that messes all of us up because time gives us demarcation points. With God, there is no demarcation point in time. He just always is. And the best way he could say in a short phrase... For, for him to be described to Moses was I am, which doesn't make much sense to us because we're looking for Jim, <laughs> Tom, something. But it doesn't describe even close to who he is. So he gave a moniker that helped Moses understand his vastness. That whatever will be, I was already there. Whatever is, I'm present. And whatever has been, I was there before it. Just work with that, Moses. But he gave it to these people, and they, 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 they termed it Yahweh. And this name was to be that which they bore, not just said. And they were to be defined by the character represented in that name. Always obeying, looking at their past redemptively, looking at their future, knowing that they were walking into the purposes of God. And everything about who they were was to be different than every other nation around them. They were not to live hypocritically. They were not to be people that said one thing and did another. They were to be counted on, and they were to be integral holders of the name. That's what it meant. Don't take my name. Don't you bear it in vain. Dear Christian, Christ-like, that's what Christian means. You who hold the name, how you doing with it? How you bearing it? Are you living the way you should? God says this, anyone who doesn't do it right, I will not leave them unpunished. Now, none of us like to hear it when God says he's going to judge people. And we almost get to the point of saying, really? You're going to get us for that? Yeah. Now, remember, his standard operating procedure is to always deal with us in mercy. By the way, that's why you are here this morning. Because of his mercy. His mercy attends every, every step of your life. If it were not for his mercy, time up, because we've done enough to deserve death. So when he decides to pull the rug out from, from, from me, he ain't wrong. He's always right. I'm wrong. And I will not judge him as somehow being wrong in doing so because he has been so merciful to me so far. Amazing. So when he, when he decides to discipline you, don't be mad. Just change. Make sure you don't hold that name in vain.
Let's talk about what it means to keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The word there, keep, is the word kadash in Hebrew. And it means to retain, to bear, to, 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 to hold on to, and to set apart. To take it and to set it apart. To make it something that you say is different than any other period of my life. Now, why is the Sabbath so restrictive as to be that which God said should be different than any other day? Well, let's not look at it in terms of being restrictive. Let's look at the Sabbath as being that which is liberating. We look at the Sabbath as restraining us from doing what we want to do, which is make more money. But God looks at the Sabbath as doing what, what you get to do, and he does the other stuff. Meaning, you have to look at societies. Do you know that the Japanese tried to go to a 10-day work week? Yeah. Every group that doesn't know much about biblical mandate, every group of people has tried to figure out why is seven so important. The Russians tried at one point to do 50-day work weeks. 50. And then they would give their workers about five or six days off after the 50. Everybody's tried to figure out how can we get more productivity out of our week? We're not being productive enough. We're not making enough money. We're not producing enough. We have to figure out how to. And so they've tried to cut this day out. And if we were honest, boy, some of y'all would say, you know, I don't even have a day out because I work six and then I have a little side job. Trying to figure out how to make a little bit more money. Because you don't want to do nothing on that day. But God said this. The reason I want you to rest is twofold. You need it, one. You need rest for your soul. You need rest for your body. Two, I'll work for you while you rest. I'll do stuff for you while you have a vacation day. And though we've considered it almost something that's just kind of on the calendar, when it was instituted for Israel, remember, this is a people that had come out of Egypt that had never had a day off. They were slaves. And so now God was giving them 52 vacation days. Not to mention that there were another 30 days of holy days and vacations whereby they had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate feasts. 82 days out of 360-something in their calendar of rest. You think God isn't interested in your well-being for you to unplug and just be? He wants to bless you, not to restrict you. And so a day off is really, really good. And you need to rejoice that your God is going to help you preserve your wealth and increase it even when you're not because you are taking your day off in faith. I don't know why I'm not getting many amens this afternoon, but I'm just going to plow right on through. Now, how is this relatable practically? Because most people consider the Sabbath Sunday in our society. When the church began, they decided to take Sabbath from Saturday because it was a Jewish church and everybody did Sabbath on Saturday. And they realized Jesus rose on Sunday, and so they moved it to Sunday because that seemed a more holy day for them. 
And so Sunday became the Sabbath for the church. And, and you come and you sit, but there has to be something in your brain that says, wait a minute now. I'm sitting, but pastor's working. So like he's working on the Sabbath. Well, this is where, this is where the, the, the scriptures have to be heard by the spirit, not just by the letter. Because even the priests who were living in the day when the commandment was given were working on the Sabbath in order to make sure the sacrifices were given and that the candle op, candelabra in the sanctuary was lit and the t- table of showbread always had bread. So they had to work on that day. And so what does God mean? Well, you see, he's a little bit more flexible than we would like to think. And so for Brett, who works on the Sabbath, Monday's my day off. Yeah. Now, you're clapping, but you don't care. Because you write me on my day off. You do not care. Now, hear me. You're not going to hear from me unless you are dying. You won't hear from me until Tuesday. It's just not going to happen because I've got to rest. Now, if you are, Jesus said, and, and, and Jesus was, was just beautiful in his interpretation of the Sabbath. A woman came uh, into the synagogue on the Sabbath as Jesus was, was teaching, and she, she was bent over, been bent over for who knows how long. And Jesus looked at her, touched her, said, get up, stand up straight. And she was healed that day. People who are religious about what needs to be done on the Sabbath, when I say religious, I'm not speaking fondly are real legalistic about it, they looked at Jesus and said, I can't believe he would heal on the Sabbath. Ah. And of course, even Jesus didn't say this, but this is what I would have said. Oh, well, what did you do yesterday for when it wasn't the Sabbath? What were you doing when it wasn't the Sabbath? She's here today. I'm here today. She needs to be healed. And why aren't you rejoicing that she's healed rather than mad that she got healed on a certain day? What's wrong with you? That's Brett's paraphrase of what was going through Jesus' brain. (laughs) Because he said this. It's good to do good on the Sabbath. If you have a sheep that goes into a pit and it it happens to be on the Sabbath, are you going to leave it in that pit to die so that you can make sure you observe the Sabbath and come back the next day? Or are you going to pick it out of the pit now? It's good to do good on the Sabbath. This daughter of Abraham has been bound. She's now free. Rejoice. If you are in a pit on a Monday, I'll help you. But if you're not, just wait till Tuesday. <laughs> the disciples were walking by a field of grain, and it was permissible in Israel cult- Israelite culture to go ahead and pick from the edges of the crop. You couldn't harvest if it wasn't your field, but you could pick from the edges of the crop. You could take from the fruit of the tree and have an apple if you wanted or an orange or a pomegranate. That was permissible. Anybody could do it. It wasn't considered stealing. And so the disciples on the Sabbath were walking and they were hungry. And so they began to pick grain in Mark chapter 2. And there were some Pharisees there. I don't know what they were doing there except being the Sabbath police. I mean, what, what, don't you got something better to do? Then look at people and see if they violate stuff. What's wrong with you? And so they're picking grain and they're eating. And they talk to Jesus and say, how is it that your disciples violate the Sabbath by picking grain on it? Jesus said, are you serious? Are you serious? Don't you have? Huh? He says, listen, remember when David was going and he went to the tabernacle and he was running from Saul and the men were hungry and they didn't know where to go and. 
And he, it, the, the priest gave him the bread that was in the tabernacle that is reserved for the priests. And God was okay with that. And he ate it and his men were refreshed. Do you remember that? Isn't it okay to do some good with holy stuff and on holy days? Isn't it okay to do some good or have good be done for you? Your problem is this. You want man to serve the Sabbath, but God made the Sabbath to serve man. That's a quote. We have to make sure that we allow the day to serve us, which means on my Monday, the Sabbath does not look like I'm just sitting around doing nothing. Doesn't mean you do nothing. Just means I don't do that which I would normally do to gain income for my life. Secondly, there are a lot of things I need to do that my bride would like see done in the house. <laughs> or that just need to be done. And so I'll go ahead and, and do some yard work or do some garage work or something. And I am not taxing myself or violating the command, but I'm also making sure that that productivity with respect to other areas are, are making my life worth it on that day, using the day to serve me. There is so much about the Sabbath that Paul talks about. He says in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, one man regards one day holier than another. Another man regards all days as the same. Let each man do as he is purposed in his heart. Now, what is he saying? That there are people who actually look at one day as being that which they need to, to, to just set aside and, and observe. And then there are those that apply the cross and the benefit therein to, to, to their entire life, meaning that all of us, if we are Christians, have ceased from our labors in order to be justified by God. It's not by works we are saved, but by grace. And so our labor means nothing with respect to our eternal salvation. We have entered into the rest of God. That what Jesus has done for us allows us the privilege of being called believers and being saved from our sins. We can't work our way to heaven. So entering into the rest of God allows us a privilege of ceasing from our labors that, that, should, that we think should qualify us for heaven. We can't get there. And people then apply that same rest to all that they do, saying, even as I work, I realize I'm empowered by God to do so, and I am no longer working in my labor but his. I'm working in my ministry. I'm working in the environment that he has sent me to. I'm working as a mother, caring for my kids. I mean, moms, when do you get a Sabbath? When does it happen? If you're a single mom, never how does it ever? So you're always preparing, always doing. How do you find a day when, when you, you, you literally don't do what you would normally do on the other six, except that you find your rest in God? And so Paul says this, if you regard one day, fine. If you regard all days being those which allow you to rest in God as you work in his power and, and in his labor, Fine. I'm not mad about either one that chooses how to apply their faith to this principle. Just make sure you do something and don't do nothing. And so if you're doing nothing, that's wrong. If you're just ignoring the day and making as much paper as you possibly can because it's another opportunity, mm, not good. Not good. I really like Chick-fil-A, but they're not open today. <laughs> They make some really good chicken sandwiches. 
extra pickles, mustard. I'm a happy man. But this man thought it was so important that he said, he looked at this passage, and he said, make sure your, your male and female servants do no work on that day. And he said, I got a bunch of people working for me. I can't command that they work on the day when God said, set it aside. And so in faith, he said, I'm shutting down. Do you know any business in Northern Virginia or D.C. that shuts down on Sunday? I don't know one. When I was growing up, there were things called blue laws. And that meant nobody could open. You couldn't go to Sweetwater on Sunday. Nothing was open. Nothing. Mama had to cook on Saturday night in order to have lunch ready when we came home from church. There was nothing available. But now everything's open except Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and you say, well, you know, he ain't making money on that day. Oh, he's making money. He is making money. And God's blessing him when he doesn't work because he's done it in faith. And let me close with this. If he doesn't get his rest out of you by your obedience, he's going to get his rest out of you. He's going to get his rest. People of Israel were supposed to allow the land, terra firma, their farming, their agriculture to rest every seven years, just like they were to rest every seven days. They were commanded to. Let the land rest every seven years. And he said, if you do this and you decide beforehand, I will make sure that in the sixth year that I give you enough produce in that year to provide for you in the sixth year and the seventh, even going to the eighth before you harvest so that you will never lack. You'll be happy to know I applied this principle for my, for my wife's garden this year. <laughs> yes, I did. You can say it was a good way to get out of it. That's fine. You're right. It's a great way to get out of it. So I told her in year six, I ain't doing this next year. I ain't doing it. I'm tired of this. This is just too much work. I'm out there with the mosquitoes. I'm digging. I'm in the dirt. I'm sweaty. I'm mad. I don't even like the food that we produce. Everybody else does. I'm, I'm, I'm venting. I'm sorry. But in year six, we got double what we got in any other year. So much, we had to give it away. We had too much fruit. I said, God, this thing works. This works. And, and there are beautiful weeds growing in it right now. Just real tall things. I'm just proud of it every time I go out. Thinking, I ain't doing nothing this year. I ain't doing nothing. Now, the people of Israel never put this principle in play once. Not once. Because they were always thinking, I need money. I need money. And they didn't trust God. So, when Judah went into captivity... To the day they had been in the land for 490 years, the promised land for 490 years. And they went into captivity into Babylon to the day. And God said for those 490 years that you did not allow the land to rest every seven, that makes 70 years. For that period, you will be in captivity. Oh, the land's going to rest. It's going to rest. God will, will make sure you rest, but it may not be comfortable. It might be because you get sick. It might be because you, have, you, you get laid off. It might be because you have consternation of soul and your mind and, and heart just can't think right anymore. And so you'll, you'll find yourself forcibly rested one way or the other. And the Israelites didn't even know this was happening. 
Jeremiah had to tell them as they were going into captivity, this is why this is happening. Other than your disobedience, yes. But for the length of time you're going to be in Babylon as a captive, here it is. You scripted it yourself. He's serious about this. And you know God is really wonderful if he's serious about trying to bless you. He's trying to bless you. He's trying to bless you. I will bless you if you do this. We're saying, no, no, I want to try to get it on my own. You don't do it as well as I do it, but if you do it, go ahead. You have to pay later. I take Mondays off because <laughs> I don't want to pay later. I don't. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace, please. Empower us and help us to be a people that understand how to obey you in this and to honor you with our obedience.